Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. So the countdown, or should I say the count up to episode 300 continues here on Life in the Stocks this week as I'm joined for episode 293 by Brendan B. Brown from Wheatus, BBB, the triple B. Uh, everybody knows Wheatus, of course, Wheatus <laughs> uh, from their smash huge hit single, Teenage Dirtbag, which was... There's only two words to describe it, really. Culturally ubiquitous at the time it came out. It was absolutely everywhere. Um, And it really is the perfect song. It's one of those songs that has not diminished in any of its impact or its quality uh, in the last 20 years. Every time I DJ any kind of rock, pop, punk, emo, alternative, anything under that umbrella, uh, you can pretty much guarantee that Teenage Dirtbag by Wheatus is going to make an appearance in the set. Probably my favorite DJ moment of this year, in fact, was soundtrack by that very song. It was at Slam Dunk Festival. It was during my last DJ set of the day on the Dickie stage, warming up the crowds for Bowling for Soup. There was about 20,000 people in the field, beautiful sunny day. And the last song that I played right before Bowling for Soup came on stage was Teenage Dirtbag, and to have that many people singing along um, was a very special moment. It's actually given me goosebumps thinking about it right now, um, and yeah, just a beautiful song. And, and, and I've seen the band live on one occasion, only once, and I, I talk about it in the podcast with Brendan, and I was blown away by the size of their back catalogue and just what a tight band they are and how much their fans really, really love them, and we talk about all of that in this podcast, along with the aforementioned smash hit song, Teenage Dirtbag, uh, and the influences behind that song, the perhaps unlikely lyrical influences. And then we talk about the re-recording of the song when the master tapes were lost and that whole process of trying to recreate the sound of something that you make when you're youthful and naive and making mistakes and learning how to make records for the first time. And then how that changes with experience and hindsight. Uh, He's just a lovely man, Uh, and we had a really nice talk. There's a lot of mutual friends, and a lot of those people get a mention in this conversation. People like Jarrett Reddick from Bowling for Soup. Uh, A, obviously Jason Perry from A was just on the show last week, and Wheatus' booking agent, Ed Sellers, good friend of mine. I was actually with Ed over the weekend watching Trailer Park Boys' Bubbles and his band The Shit Rockers, and Billy Bob Thornton and the Box Masters as well went to London and Liverpool to see the shows, took a bunch of photos, had some amazing conversations with Billy Bob and some of the other guys in his band after the show. Uh, and it does look, I don't want to count my chickens just yet, but fingers crossed, touch wood, it does look like Billy Bob is up for coming on the podcast at a later date as well. So watch this space for that. If you're not already, please do subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We're available on all major podcast platforms. And you can also follow me on Facebook, I've, I've recently deleted Twitter off my phone because I just don't use it anymore. Uh, but Instagram and Facebook, you'll find me. And reluctantly, I've decided to start posting more video clips and, and kind of snippets from the show over on TikTok, um, which, you know, <laughs> I hate that app so much. I hate the whole culture around it. But I feel like it's, you know, it, it is the reality of it is, is it is a good platform to promote stuff because videos seem to just go viral and get way more views on that platform. So I'll be I'll be doing some more posts 
um, from podcast clips over on there as well. At Matt Stocks DJ is where you'll find me on all of them anyway. Uh, and you will find Wheatus throughout, and I do mean throughout the UK during September, October, and November. They're basically on tour over here for about two months. There is what looks close to about 100 dates, so I'm not going to read all of them out. Uh, but if you go to wheatus.com forward slash shows, you can see where they're going, and it really is every pocket of the UK. So go see this band live. Please do enjoy episode 293 of Life in the Stocks with Brendan B. Brown from Wheatus. Hey, dude. How are you? Good. Look at that. So, That's a setup, isn't it? We're in business. Yeah. I think we're okay now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so sorry about this morning. Um, not at no all. <sighs> this is better. This is okay. better. Str- strong signal, proper setup. And um, yeah, yeah just, just going back to what you were telling me about your dog, um, 16 is, is quite the age, isn't it? He's an old boy. He's, um, uh, I've had uh, different people tell me different things about how it correlates to human age, but somebody said he's over a hundred. I don't know if that's actually true, but because he's a small dog, you know. Um, but he's on the floor next to me now, and he's giving me a whimper here and there. Where is he? Amongst, amongst the chairs and the wires. Yeah, I can't well, we see. Have a, we have a string quartet coming in today to record a, a chamber music version of Teenage Dirtbag. Wow. And, um, what you see behind me is uh, our live rig um, sort of patched into our recording rig so that they can hear themselves and do a proper performance. So uh, um, it's all happening. <laughs> Always. Well, I love that. Yeah. I, I actually, um, I've got a story to share with you and you can maybe fill in some details and tell me whether or not this is the way it happened or whether okay. I've made up details in my mind because i have a tendency to do that and i guess we all do but you played at the brooklyn bowl in london um about six years ago i want to say yeah i remember that show and it was such a good show and i was the i was the resident dj at that venue so i'd always dj around band sets and i remember that what at least the way i remember it is the way you guys approach the set is you'd kind of just let the audience dictate you know the track list and, and the order of songs and everything and it just seemed like a, a request show basically um and what blew me away was that everybody who was there had such love and adoration and appreciation for for Wheatus. and i seem to remember but correct me if i'm wrong or not that you didn't even play teenage dirtbag because everybody was just such hardcore fans and they were like yeah we don't need to hear that one and i was well, like and they didn't even play it would that no, have happened we, that way? No, uh, we did play it. We always play it. Right. I think Matthew has a very short list of perhaps the one show where we didn't play it. Um, or the two shows, one where we didn't play it and one where it was cut short. Um, that's a monsoon in South Africa I'm talking about. But um, <laughs> we definitely played it uh, at the Brooklyn Bowl in London. Um, I remember that I think that was one of the shows we exceeded two hours of set time because, as you said, there were people in the front row from the Netherlands and Belgium and uh, a few German fans had flown into London or stopped in on a tourist trip <clears throat> to see the show. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we uh, we were, that was one of those shows where we, what we intended to happen with the audience calling the set list thing actually happened, which is to say that they take over for the show. So yeah. I wouldn't call it so much interactive as this is we're out there sort of back and call, you know? Yeah. A hundred percent. And I loved and it, it. And I loved it takes how a lot of work to get to that point where you, where <laughs> you can play, you know, 55, 60 songs that they call out, whatever it is. Obviously there's some, we can't get to, um, 
there are technical reasons for that and other things but but the but the um but the vast majority of the catalog first three albums at least were were we intend to come back um actually i shouldn't say first three it's going to be it's going to be all seven that we're going to have selections from on this one so i think the song pool at the end of this summer's rehearsal sessions will be somewhere between 60 and 70 songs wow Um, and they're all bangers man it was one of the best sets i've ever seen i was really blown away and really impressed by your musical ability the the love as i said of the people who were there for your band and just the overall vibe in the room that night it was one of the most lovely crowds i've ever seen um and that must be i guess a a recurring theme at your shows because i I spend a lot of time around different bands and i tour with different bands and every band has their own unique particular type of fan obviously the band is like the lighthouse and people go towards that lighthouse and each band puts out slightly different lights is the way i like to look at it and i feel like as as a group you determine certain perimeters you know obviously it's all music but i I definitely think that different acts attract different types of, of people because of the um the message in their music the way they carry themselves and your fan base definitely is in my experience obviously you have infinitely more experience with your fan base than me but in my experience some of the the sweetest loveliest genuine appreciators of music i've ever had the pleasure of of engaging with i was really really touched by the relationship you share with your crowd that night yeah we're we're very we're very fortunate in that regard we're kind of the lucky end of from the 90s really in some ways um we uh we established that relationship after teenage dirtbag and a little respect for hits uh we're talking about starting in 2004 2005 2006 when the crowds dwindled and we were left with this core of people who were interested in more than just what they'd seen on television and the the best thing about that period the real reason that that's the sustaining infrastructure for us now is because we got to know all of those people if 20 people came to see us at a show we met and befriended almost all of them some of them wound up working for us in our merchandise and in our live crew Uh, some are just long-term friends who we make breakfast plans with when we roll into aberdeen or worcester or where you you name it you know um and that uh that has grown those 20 people or so have grown into because to be perfectly honest there were shows where there were 20 people and that's it you know 2005 2006 and those 20 are now you know the two or 300 that are right up front and they determine the course of the show that they want to pay for you know they get to determine in the moment what kind of an evening they're going to have and our job now is to be as flexible as we can be to accommodate whatever they are feeling. You don't know what a crowd is, is experiencing. What kind of a day did they have? You know, what kind of a week has it been for them? Is it a Friday night? Is it a Sunday night? Is it a different mood? Did the mood of the night time not match the mood of the day? If you're a band and you're touring with a fixed set list and you're sort of presenting it as though it's my way or the highway, this is how we entertain you. Um, I think that there's a possibility that you'll come up short because you're not paying attention, you're not listening to them. You know, you're not you're you're not picking up any of their vibe. And once we we start a show without a set list because we want the vibe of the room to tell us what to do. That's we want to be informed by that and nothing else. And you know, everyone's going to get their teenage dirtbag. That's a guarantee. Sometimes I, I remembered that wrong them. then. <laughs> yeah. I was that's giving okay. just that's extra, okay. extra that's... credit. I was like, man, these guys are so badass. They didn't even need to play that one hit. <laughs> well, if, if that did happen, if we did indeed outshine the song with the, with the concert, with the show, with the whole thing, um, that's, a, that's a goal attained, right? Um, now, that said, we love Teenage Dirtbag. That song is the reason we exist. I, it's all of the travel and the momentum it's our manager it's our record label it does the job of so many it's a pr company you know um it it's the locomotive that pulls us along and we we're obligated to follow it and to admit that 
it, it only partially belongs to us. It mostly belongs to people who see themselves in the narrative and that we're, we're obligated to deliver it exactly how they need to hear it. So we're trying all the, all the while to be as accurate to the album as we can possibly be on that song and the others. And, you know, just bring, show up and give you your, your 25 pounds, you know, um, and, and make sure that you walk away glad you spent it. Yeah, just I mean, I'd like to just touch on that song whilst we're we're on it for for a moment or two. There's loads I want to pick your brain about, but I watched the other night the the Vice documentary that was made some years ago. I guess back when Vice was still doing valuable content, and um, it's you know about a twenty minute long documentary about the history of the song, the meaning of the song, how it came together, and I'll be honest, I didn't know anything about the you know the biographical elements and and the inspiration. Um, behind certain elements of it in regards to the incident that happened in your hometown and and that whole kind of satanic panic theme feeding in and what that did to people who were into that kind of music at that time and how it was, you know, in the sense that punk was the same, I guess, when punk first arrived, it was seen as like a, you know, a threat to society and rock and roll in the 50s. And there's obviously been a few moments like that throughout time, but I wonder if you could shed some light on living through that time as a fan of bands like I Made and ACDC and, you know, being an outsider kid and then something like that that's so horrendous happens literally like in your back garden pretty much, right? And then yeah, how that feeds into the, the society that you're growing up in and the mood in that town at that time. Well, yeah, so I think a lot of kids come into their own identity with music, you know? The first thing you're into, the first poster, the first album buy, these are all identity moments. It's not just music. It's about who you are and who you will become and all that. And there's the struggle, of course, the, the, the rudderless time where you don't know who to be and you don't know which kids you want to hang out with and you don't know how you want to identify and you're kind of figuring out what good and bad is and what, what people are like. And then... I, at the time, 1984, in the summer of 1984, um, I had tape case full of ACDC and, uh, and uh, Prince and Van Halen and uh, Iron Maiden, a couple Iron Maiden tapes. And I used to walk around with my tape. I, I carried my tape case with me and my Walkman. And, you know, I was, I was uh, beginning to identify with this heavier, you could say, I guess, darker in its imagery side of music in particular for me it was acdc um they're my favorite band of real, all time love them yeah the real crown show that's still the best band who has ever been i mean Amen. There's, there's nobody else there's yeah. nobody else Great. Um, but um but i was uh, i could play every note of those songs by the time i was 13 but i started that process back in in the summer of you know 83 84 and i was just beginning to identify with heavy music and along comes this murder and this kid is arrested with the ACDC shirt on and uh, suddenly there's this sort of hypocritical scrutiny on your, on your identity or on what your burgeoning identity is. And you have this, or I had at, at least this extremely felt like an extremely dangerous choice to make is okay. You're not ready for this, but you're going to have to decide to be yourself now. And it doesn't matter if parents and priests and nuns and, cops and whoever else all think that that means that you're a devil worshiper and you're going to kill your friends in the woods it doesn't matter you still have to stick with it and be who you are right because what is it bringing you you're going to trade your passion for for sadness and compliance and 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 keep it keep the boat from rocking or you're going to stick with who who you are and catch some shit and boy did did i catch some shit for the kind of stuff i was into and i also, at the same moment, this incredibly intense example of, of adult hypocrisy and um, a, a understanding for the, for the first time truly that even having sensed it before that, the, that, uh, that adults were liars and potentially very, very bad people, worse even than the, than the murderer in some cases, because at least you could say that he was 17 and his frontal lobe wasn't done developing yet with all the drugs it was on and so on, but there's no excuse for adults to, to behave this way and um it was a it was a like a real uh 
precipice moment for for me as a as a about the youngest age you could think to make a decision like that is that, no i'm gonna stick with i'm gonna buy more acdc records in fact i'm buying a black sabbath record next week you know <laughs> like like um and that was trouble that was trouble that was to carry big consequences um alienation and uh, other parents don't want you hanging out with their kids and you know whatever else and then my parents responding to the murder by sending me to a boys school that was a commute an hour and a half commute each way um uh, was what led to an incredible period of high school like those four years very very isolated um i was getting home from i was leaving for for school at at 5 45 in the morning and i was getting home at 7 p.m., 6 p.m., 8 p.m., depending, you know. Um, so it was like a, it was like at the age of 13, a few years after the murder, I became a commuter. Uh, and and with that, it. did a lot of kind of social alienation take place? Because where other people are walking to school with their friends and hanging out after school, you're just, you know, commuting like a, an adult going to an office job. Pretty much exactly that. Only, only, uh, only you're a kid. Yeah. So and you're wearing a tie. So there's no, there aren't, there, there's, there's no two things that'll draw a punch faster than a, than a, a Catholic school tie and a, and the fact that you're alone. <laughs> so, in the eighties in um, New York. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um. So, um, it was like that. It was um. It was a. Uh, um. So you kind of, you were the kid in the song, right? That's why it is such a. I mean, you know, you. I think when you hear a great song, and it is a great song, a great song you hear how personal and emotional and you know just life and death almost the subject matter is to the artist and i think that i mean is one I of think the I wanted to be the kid in the song. you know I, I wanted to be the kid in the song i didn't go to school with girls i went to a boys school you know there was no noel in right. my world um and uh i guess the only thing is uh the only thing that kind of touches on it is uh she doesn't know who i am and then he doesn't know who I am. That's a sort of tag at the end of the verse there. Because um, that was true. Kids from my hometown didn't know who I was. I was like, I didn't grow up with them in some sense. So um, there's a little bit of that. But the real, the real high school experience for me is more, more accurately expressed in a song called Mope, which we released uh, with the Teenage Dirtbag 2020 re-record as a single pair, as Teenage Dirtbag 2020 and Mope together. Mope is more accurate to my own high school experience of not having anything to do except homework. And once that was done, put on some sweatpants and play guitar. It was kind of like, that was it, you know? Um, and what and was the reason I, for that re-record? I mean, Just quickly on, on, on the re-record on, on that, like was, was that because you didn't own the, the publishing rights to the original? No, we own the publishing. It was right. the master, the original master rights that we, uh, that were in dispute. Uh, sorry, we have, uh, NYPD chasing That's somebody right now. Classic um, ambiance, uh, <laughs> <laughs> authentic. But um, we uh, we the original master recording, which uh, uh, Sony Music had the rights to, <clears throat> we have come to discover that it may indeed be lost. Um, the multi-track original. Um, Rolling Stone reached out around the time uh, that the documentary was happening, and did a piece and asked about. And they asked Sony formally about where the, the location of the original master tape uh, they never got back to them sony never got back to rolling stone so we we seem to not have a clear picture of what happened to our original recording and so we made another one um because we still can and because we wanted to own it ourselves um there was something about that hard work that we did in my mother's house in march in february or Mar march of, of the year 2000 being vanished that really bothered me like deeply and i thought just make another one you can do it you can still sing that song go and um it was much harder to do than to say but um, <laughs> well i think when you're young it. right you're so in the moment of creation and that there's great insight into that recording process that you're talking about in this documentary as well there's all this home footage from i guess your mum or your brother or yourself and and it's just so charming um to see the level of detail and, and care that went into that recording process. Um, and it's a different time, wasn't it? And so the, the methodology was different then and you, you had to go analog, you had to go old school, but 
I mean, it must have been at that point in your life so exciting. And maybe now it's like you don't have that same youthful <laughs> joy de vivre. It's more just like a scientific process of trying to replicate the original thing, right? It must have still been a trip, but oh, it was a total trip. Yeah, um, yeah. Of course, you're that with that youthful exuberance comes a lot of mistakes and inexperience. And uh, going through the re-record, we had to decide which parts of that youthful energy were worth recreating and which were just bad <laughs> and could be done better and so we corrected some things hopefully things you don't notice and distract you uh, that will distract you and things that we had done that were mistakes we recreated painstakingly like the snare drum sound in teenage dirtbag which was this weird accident that had happened where i had done an early cut of the guitars way before uh, the final version, March of 2000, but sometime in 98 or something, I had done a version of it. And those guitars, unbeknownst to me, were still on one of the tapes that Dave Thoner, the mixing engineer, received. And on those guitars, I had accidentally forgot to mute in between, you know, the donut pop, donut. They're supposed to, the guitar is supposed to go away when that snare comes in. But instead, the snare was so loud in the room in the speakers when I was recording it that I was hitting the, my acoustic guitar. And a, and a distorted version of the snare was sort of ghosting through my guitar electronics into the recording. And there was just something about that chorus that was not working until we found that it was that on the left side, there's this like ghost guitar version of the snare that has to be there. And I stood on a, got recreated the angles by standing on a speaker cabinet and cranked it to the point where i thought my eyes were going to pop out of my head and, and <laughs> did the, did that version again and i thought what the hell were we thinking this was so stupid <laughs> every every proper engineer who works in the studio would say boys you get out you know <laughs> you're not ready <laughs> so have you ever met tom green did your paths ever cross back in the no, day no um because he used to make music in... as well before he was, uh, you know, the kind of comedy star that we know and love. And um, he sure. talked He talked to me a lot. He was on the show and he talked to me a lot about using, I think it's the same thing you guys use, like a Tascam recorder. He used to make all his beats on, on one of those for his hip-hop projects. And he just, you know, said how creative and exciting that time was when, you know, this equipment was made available and you could just be in your bedroom and it would take days and days and days and days and days and then you know weeks and often years to to get the finished product done. But again, I, I think part of it is nostalgia and romanticism, but I think there is a lot to be said for that approach to creativity. Oh, sure. From yeah. the ground up. Yeah. So in some sense, the cloistered, uh, undiscovered creative process is uh i don't know how you say this um is more true or more more real than the one that once you get it out and you're mixing your song with other people and it's interactive and there's opinions and other ideas coming in it's just something about the raw mistakes uh of creativity that is that when it's isolated when it's when it's has its own um singular time it, that's I think more vital. I don't know why. I don't know why. Did you know you had an absolute banger on your hands from pretty early on in the song's development? Because whenever I hear a song that's so evidently a hit, I always wonder, like, was it evident from the start that this thing was going to be a monster? Because it had everything, really, you know, sonically, thematically, melodically. Right. It had all the touchstones of what, you know, was going to be a monster of a single. But what well, you know it is like that's what you well, got. And I didn't know that it would be a successful single. I knew it was a, um, and it scared me a little bit that it was good because it was four minutes and twenty seconds long or so, and I thought somebody's going to want to chop this into pieces and ruin this narrative arc, um, and so for that reason I wouldn't show it to anybody for a very long time. I wouldn't. I, we started giving it away so that it was out there in the in the consciousness of the crowd that we were building in New York City. We wouldn't sell it. We were giving it away on a on a sampler CD that I was burning myself on my own like tower, you know. And um, 
I think maybe we we got it in under the wire to the point where when Donnie Einer at Columbia Records heard it, he did not want to cut it down. He said, this is fine like it is, and he was talking about our demo. Of course, later, a few weeks later, they started to panic about the lyric um, because of the Columbine uh, anniversary. We delivered our first album um, to Columbia Records, I think, the week of the first anniversary of the Columbine shooting. So it was in the news, and it was extremely topical, and here was this song with her boyfriend's a dick, he brings a gun to school, and they were like, you got to change that. And I was like, just like when I was 10 years old, I was like, no, <laughs> like I'll never change it. Don't put it out. I literally said that like, don't, if it's, you know, so they censored it in a way that they could without me being involved. And, and, uh, that's the version that went out there. But I think with, that with that's the scratch sort of back censorship the... only. Yeah. 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 But I think that just draws people in. If you can't hear something, you want to know what it is. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Am I right in thinking this? Did you later go on to score a film about the Columbine shooting? Yeah, we we uh, we wrote a song called "Now," uh, which was a score for a specific scene, a suicide scene in in uh, April Showers, which is a movie made by a survivor um, of the Columbine massacre. Um, yeah, it's intense. Go look at that movie. Go watch that. That's April showers or April skies? It's April showers. April showers. And I mean, was that just coincidence or were you just attracted to that subject matter because of, you know, the fairly close proximity to your story? The director sought me out after the fact. Right. Um, And uh, we kind of hit it off and and, uh, and, uh, he said, you know, look, can you do something unique for this scene? We can't find anything to work for this scene. Can you make something for it? And uh, the song now... Uh, was just written and was composed and performed and recorded while I was watching the scene, so it's it's actually scored. Uh, it's a song on our on our uh, I think our fifth uh, fourth album fifth album fourth album and called the Lightning EP, and um, it uh, it's just another track on our on our list. But in the movie, it's it's made for the for the scene it has the timing and the and the structure and the and the length of the scene so um yeah it's a good movie go go watch it i definitely will um new york in the 90s what was the the musical culture at that point in time who were your peers what was happening in the city interesting um we predated the whole strokes thing by about 8 months 9 months and we were also originally from Long Island. So the bands in the scene that were made up of Manhattan kids and Brooklyn kids, we didn't really know them very well. We were kind of like outsiders. Uh, we were also a bit more mainstream accessible rock than the Interpols and the uh, um, Strokes kind of. Um, there's an interesting documentary about that called Meet Me in the Bathroom, but we are yeah. not in. <laughs> Right, <laughs> but um, or not into my knowledge. I haven't watched it yet, but uh, I've been trying to. I've been watching clips of it while eating my breakfast and wanting to have an, enough unbroken time to sit down and watch it. And um, I uh, I think that that's a pretty accurate assessment of what happened in New York City from 1995 to 19 or 2001 or so. Um, so yeah, for me. New York City music scene was always the magnetic fields. I don't know if you're familiar with that. I do know the 69 love songs, right? Yeah. 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 I I was so lucky. In 1996, somebody brought me to uh, a magnetic field show at the time at Fez under the Time Cafe. And it was just this tiny little scene where a bunch of kids were sitting in, in booths watching Stephen Merritt do his thing with his band and it was just it was i couldn't believe it i had never heard a single song and i bought everything they had that night um and uh in particular a song called josephine um uh that he that he sang and on the record uh one of the girls in the magnetic field sings it i'm pretty sure but but uh, live that night he sang it in his big baritone with a 
with a smoke with a smoldering cigarette stuck in the top of his piece of crap hondo guitar or whatever and he still had his construction boots on from work and it was just i couldn't believe it man it was like a real like you don't know what you're doing in music moment for me go back to the drawing board you know um so magnetic fields was always for me the new york 90s music scene Amazing. another band called east river pipe or an artist called east river pipe it's really cool yeah and i saw the wrens they were a jersey band but they were basically coming up in new york um band called chavez um a band called holiday they were from out of town too i think they were from connecticut but these are all like the sort of 90s bands that didn't happen orange nine millimeter was kicking around there was a pretty decent post-hardcore scene still happening quicksand helmet you know um that was new york 90s music for me say hello to a new era of mental health care cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100 online you'll experience the all-new cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. And with the UK, because it seems to me from looking at the history of your band, like was it pretty immediate over here, our embracement and acceptance of the band just off the back Absolutely. of that? Absolutely. You guys came on strong right away. Yeah. Right away. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and gave us a career, really. I mean, Australia was first, if we're being fair. Um, they were, they were B three months, and they gave us a Christmas single. But um, in the long haul, the UK really took took the record the whole entire album into their hearts and i still get the most uh a, the country in the world with the greatest number of my parents bought me this record stories is definitely the united kingdom without a doubt well that cover was so synonymous with that time um i, th I think maybe just because i was heavily into the kind of third wave scar stuff 
um and just the kind of checkered two-tone obviously it was you know it wasn't black and white it was was it orange and green or yellow it's, it's yellow blue and, and yellow blue, it's and, blue yellow. and yellow with a red logo yeah but it had a very similar a... feel to that kind mm. of scar checkered thing and so i fell that's right so in interesting that's fascinating that that's how you that's how you related to it because we're not a ska band by any stretch and as a matter no. of fact one of the very few genres that i'm not influenced by is ska um i do like some ska songs um uh, but i can't claim to have ever been you know um a ska kid matthew our bass player was uh really into real big fish and um i should say i'm a huge fishbone fan and they sometimes how can you not hear into ska right yeah, yeah. i love that yeah. band They're, so much still never they, seen them live are... but holding holding out most underrated band in the world ever i mean mm. i saw them at Lollapalooza in 93 and to wow. say that they stole the show is just you're not even saying something like these guys first of all, it was like 12 of them on stage right so they're like, and they're just so good just so tight um and musicality uh you know angelo moore has three saxophones around his neck and they're all different you know like just just killer just absolute killer and then i saw them at london underground oh wow uh, a few years later in a tiny little club where they performed naked that was pretty <laughs> great man pre-cell phone era right when you could get away with that kind of stuff oh yeah that would be yeah. viral in a new york second oh yeah if that happened today <laughs> were you kind of doing stuff like glastonbury reading v was that all happening right out the gate then like main stage kind of you know yeah we did some festivals reading and v and we were never cool enough to do glastonbury but um but the, we um uh very lucky with the, some great festival slots my most memorable was um opening for james brown in belgium wow. that was that was a, an experience boy that was like you're it's you're in school now kid pay attention you know big time my friend toured the world with him as a dj and he said at one of the last shows he got to walk up the ramp with him and you know took ages because obviously he was super old at that point but he's like having this conversation with him james is like holding his arm walking up the ramp and it's just like i mean with people like him it just it doesn't get much more closer to the source does it of like no. a, a original you know whether it's elvis or little richard or those cats that like created this world from from nothing living really. legend living legend Li a living i'll give you better than legend he's a reason he's a living reason we're doing it like angus or paul mccartney or bruce springsteen or chuck d or you know ll cool j these the these people are are the living legends of of why we're doing this you know how was it for you he might not be quite on par with with the names you just mentioned but he's certainly an icon of the genre and bruce dickinson when you get to work with him how was that experience what was he like and how did it come about was it just off the back again of the the i made and reference in in teenage dirtbag that kind of got yeah, you we, on their for radar? A time we had we they, they embraced it and for a time we had the same management right and right right Bruce was so good to us. I went and had Christmas dinner with his family, and we talked about supersonic flight. Um, you're talking about the best rock and roll heavy music frontman of all time, right? And it's going to be centuries before somebody can fill those shoes. Because if you watch an Iron Maiden show now, they're better than they ever were. And what are they in their 70s? 60s and 70s? I mean, like, we're talking about guys who really genuinely take care of themselves so that they can deliver some of the craziest music that's ever been made. It's, a lot of people talk about Maiden and don't talk about their musicality. Which was insane. Like, yeah, yeah. It's insane. There's an there's, there's a, a, a absolutely artisan-crafted thrash metal happening at any given moment, which is, mean, which is to say that it's the most intense kind of playing that you can do and it's not sloppy yeah it's 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 pinpoint perfect and that's steve harris being the producer and songwriter of the band and nico mcbrain being able to turn on a dime tempo wise and all of the guitar love that they have the three the three gene the three the holy trinity of guitars in that band you know and it's just like 
There's nothing that that band can't do. And you should, if you get a chance, pay a lot of money to see Iron Maiden before you, before they don't tour anymore. I'm sure yeah. that they'll be out for a while longer because they seem to love it so much. But that is, that's a fucking show. That's like, oh my God. Well, there's elements of it as well for me of like Monty Python and kind of British old school, like 60s humor, as well as the, the musicality and the stage show and the performance. There is a kind of Python-esque quality to what they do as well like a kind of tongue-in-cheek self-awareness yeah it's like you're simultaneously watching the greatest heavy band of all time and the young ones yeah <laughs> and that so they fully embraced you guys into the camp did they i love i love to hear that they were really kind to us and we were very fortunate that um in uh one week in august of of 2001 we couldn't find a studio uh, to to record our third single wannabe gangster and um or should say re-record a remix of it. And uh, Abbey Road, Room 2, had just freed up due to a cancellation. And Bruce rode his road bike down to Abbey Road. And we, in the, in the room that the Beatles made Sgt. Pepper in, we, we made a record with Bruce Dickinson. And I'm saying it right now. It's, words are coming out of my mouth. And I still can't connect with how un- unbelievable daydream that is. Um, and that was because Bruce was kind enough to, to bring his time and his expertise into our world. And um, like I said, we're the luckiest band from the 90s. What a man. I think at that time as well, it wasn't fashionable to reference Iron Maiden. And you guys and some 41 did so. And obviously Fat Lip and Teenage Dirtbag, arguably the two biggest zeitgeist capturing hits of that time. There was obviously all the small things and a couple of others. And I have to give a mention to my good friend Jarrett, who I know you know as well. Girl, all the bad guys once was a what smasher a as well. But they weren't referencing guy. Iron Maiden. And, and you and no. some 41 were. And I think that was part of the charm because it was, you know, it was of this kind of emo, new metal, pop punk time. But you're pulling from the 80s and, and highlighting those childhood influences and bringing them up to date. And, you know, well, I mean, yeah, there, there was a moment through the grunge period where it wasn't popular to say where you got your chops. Right. Because, you know, Kim Thale and, and, you know, Chris Cornell and, you know, Jeff Ament and, and um, Mike McCready and Stone Gossard, all those wonderful guitar players um, and bass players, they they cut their teeth on the on the metal and heavy rock of the 70s and 80s. Right. And so did I. Like, that's where I learned how to play. Angus Young taught me how to play guitar, you know, um, Judas Priest taught me how to play guitar. Like that's really like Alex Lifeson taught me how to play guitar, those records. And there was this period where all the hair metal got washed away, where they tried to wash away a little bit too much. And it wasn't popular to say where you got your chops. And I think some 41 and we just have the one thing in common of admitting at least that we learned how to play, got our chops from these bands, you know? Uh, Rivers has always been, a big strong vocal proponent and advocate of that as well you know he's always mentioning kiss and maiden and priest and oh yeah oh yeah are you guys friends have you ever met yeah we uh we hung out uh back in february over in california and talked about life um and guitar uh did you dig the van weezer record uh, what what weezer record the van weezer record did you hear that one (laughs) (laughs) um i have some really strong tastes when it comes to Weezer. Uh, obviously, Pinkerton was my favorite back in 96. But since then, my, my real strong pull for them has been Everything Will Be Okay, All Right in the End, and, um, and the other one, Okay Human. Yeah. Um, th- those two, for me, have more, a bit more really earthy. Than, it on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those moments where he goes into that mode, for me, he's one of my favorite favorite artists in, in that mode. And I love the other stuff. I love to, I love to dance around when, you know, when, when that shit comes on and he's a great songwriter, but he, he was also capable of some really deep, deep stuff. And I, you know, that's an interesting combo to be so accessible in one moment and then make something so sublime and sort of curious the next, you know, have you ever written together? You two? No, no, no? I've never written together. You think that's something that could ever happen? Sure. Yeah. Maybe one day when we're real old. 
<laughs> I just love that crossover of the two bands with um I guess there came a time when I mean you might have other thoughts on this but people started thinking because I guess of the the file sharing stuff that started happening that you know it was Weezer that did Teenage Dirtbag and then Weezer started covering Teenage Dirtbag and having a bit of fun with that I enjoyed yeah, that we we talked about that too <laughs> were you all right That's with a, him doing it were you cool absolutely yeah. yeah i i i've admired him since i was in college as a songwriter and a guitar player and i i feel honored that he would pick up his guitar and play my song i that's great and i don't care who knows who wrote it <laughs> as long as it's out much. there as long as it's out there <laughs> yeah. well it's interesting yeah. as well because more recently you've obviously had people like phoebe bridges and uh who who's the like one direction like massive oh, yeah. massive bands covering the yeah. song up kind of you know updating the audience and because they would have been kids you know at the one yeah. direction shows who would have never heard that tune obviously back in the day there's a chicago hip-hop artist called rod wave who did something very interesting with it you can check out uh one of his interpolations i love the interpolations Jax did a really good interpolation of it um yeah chloe lilac i love that stuff i love it you mentioned uh, Alex Lifeson a moment ago, and uh, I've been told by Jason Perry to say hello to you. Um, I did a live Q&A with Jason a week or so ago, and awesome. he wouldn't shut up about Rush. No surprises there. Um, he said... You, you and I have to, we'd have to book a separate podcast and talk about Rush. <laughs> right, Rush cast. He yeah. said to say that one of his favorite memories of, of time spent with you um, was when you were touring together I guess for the the Hi-Fi Serious anniversary tour, um, and he said that you guys sound checked to I can't remember the name of the Rush song. Time will stand, perhaps. Time stands still. Time stands still. Yeah, and, time uh, stands still. We we uh, we still play that. We st we have that at the ready. That's on our uh, on-demand uh, covers list. Um, time stands still is from the 1987 record Hold Your Fire, and uh, boy, is it a tricky one. It's so tricky. <clears throat> How did you and Jason first link up? Was it for the McBusted project, or, or where does that friendship start? Oh, God. You know how you can't even remember where you met somebody the first time? <laughs> it's, just, it's an old friendship. Just, yeah, it's just like it's back there, way back there in the, in the, in the Chris, Chris's and the Crosses of life, you know? Um, but um, we, we have so many relationships like that. Mostly because we're the, we're like the Zelig of music. Like <laughs> we kind of wind up in these situations. Like, like next week we're direct support in between uh, for Paramore in between Pup and Paramore. And I initially was like, you guys have the wrong W band. <laughs> but and then last last weekend we opened up for Blues Traveler and Jacob Dylan's band, The Wallflowers. And wow, these two things don't really make sense, which is why I think like we're. We sometimes feel like we're the accidental invite. Like, how did we get let into this situation? But um, I think you do yourself a disservice there because I think what you guys have is a, a musicality that, that straddles both worlds. Um, yeah. And that's, that's obviously well, why you can sit on those bills. And people who don't understand the full back catalog might look at the name on the poster and go, huh? But then they get there and they hear it and they see it and they go, ah. Perhaps. Perhaps we can win them over like, like at the Brooklyn Bowl. You know that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, that man. would be that would be my favorite way to do it for sure. And how was touring arenas with Busted? How did their fans oh, respond to you guys? It just uh, uh, overwhelming feeling of acceptance. Didn't know that an audience that big would pay attention to us. You know, eighteen thousand, twenty thousand people at at once, um, and pay attention to what we're specifically doing, not necessarily all waiting for Teenage Dirtbag, but a majority who are waiting for Teenage Dirtbag also catching something else that they're really interested in. Um, our Spotify plays on our other songs went through the roof, the ones that we played that night. So it just, it was a very kind turn that James and the boys gave us on that run, and it turned things into something else that's still evolving. So Awesome. And yeah, you yeah. wrote a bunch of the tunes for the album with them as well, right? I wrote, uh, no, not, the, not the, the newer Busted record, but I did write with James on uh, his Son of Dork record. We wrote a song together called Boy Band. Got it. And we've written several other tunes together that are as yet unreleased. So, um, yeah, 
As a matter of fact, I have to do a, a feature for him uh, tomorrow. So, there so we yeah, go. it's all still happening. He's a good friend of mine. I saw him uh, back, in, back in March as well. It is all happening. And Jarrett, I love, and I've known Jarrett for 12 years or so. I've toured with Bowling for Soup a bunch of times. I'll be seeing him in two weeks at Slam Dunk over here. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, I remember the tour quite well. It was 2006 or seven around that time. You guys did a big run all over the UK with Bowling for Soup. And they're another band who just, I guess, are so much bigger in the UK than they are in the States because of just the absolute love that the UK has for that band. And, you know, they obviously hit at a similar time with Girl or the Bad Guys once. And, you know, they've just over the years retained such a massive, loving, loyal fan base over here. That must have been a good time. Was it mid noughties the first time you, you hit up the UK shores with them? Actually, no. Uh, the first time we hit the UK was in March or February of 2001. But Bowling for Soup. With, with Bowling for Soup, because, I mean, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, with. No, we, no, the first time we came over with Bowling for Soup was 2007 on the Get Happy Tour. That was the first time we toured with them. There you go. Um, yeah, that's the one. Bowling for Soup. Bowling for Soup. Jarrett and his, and his entire operation. I've I've learned on tour with him that you must 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 be an entertainer first and foremost, right? He is so connected with that concept. You go to Bowling for Soup, you're it's just impossible to have a bad time. It's not it's not going to be it's just guarantee. It's an absolute guarantee because the guy is so entertaining and he just knows what he's doing up there, and he fronts one of the coolest, funnest, tightest cool texas rock bands in the whole entire universe so it's like um it's the whole package with him he's like a living cartoon he's like a living hanna Barbera cartoon you know i i see him that way i see him as animated and me too his voice he's like yeah, the roger rabbit talking voice pop punk. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah. yeah um and you know it's just like well you can't i can't think about that dude or see him on tiktok without smiling it's always a smile so you know he's he's a he's a great one He's another dude. Have you ever written together? I could see some amazing stuff happening if you we never had the chance down. to write together. Um, we, we again, we <clears throat> we crossed paths so quickly, and he's down in Texas, and I'm in New York. So, um, but we should. There's no excuse for it. We should really do it one day. I, I reckon you should. Can I ask you about the second album? Because again, I wasn't really aware of this until you know, sort of delving into the history of the band ahead of today's chat. But that album, Wall to Wall, is like just single city. There's so many good tunes on the album. I know you did re-release Lemonade later on, but there's like, you know, there's The Deck, Anyway, um, Freak, is it Freak Out or Freak On? Freak On, yeah. Freak um, On. So many great a, hits. What happened with that album, man? They, it would, didn't matter if that record was Sgt. Pepper's, man. They would not putting it out. It was, it, wasn't, it was doomed no matter what it sounded like. And I worked really hard at making each one of those songs a uniquely aggressive yet accessible piece of heavy pop rock power pop if you will and um none of it connected with them because they didn't have a plan for us to have a second album at all they were done with us so and why was that because the sales really, not good from the first album and dirtbag no and we recouped that. on our first we recouped on our first album we were cheap we were cheap but those were the days of cds costing 25 dollars having two good songs on them Artists playing the game that the label wanted them to play. And generally speaking, not high value for your buck in, in, as a consumer. And we were not about that. We took too long. Um, and we didn't let the A&R or any stylist come to our sessions or our photo shoots or any of that stuff. We just didn't know how to play the game. We were unseasoned. Some, pe some artists get, get the whole package right, right? They, they know how to talk the talk and make the label people feel included and all that stuff. We weren't that band. We were just independent sort of working class jerks from Long Island who, who only knew how to do what we knew how to do. And Right, bangers. <laughs> if, if you say so, sure. Thank you. And, um, and you know, I mean, to this day, it hasn't stopped Lemonade. I mean, Lemonade went, went and did its own work. It never even got a release in the United States. Lemonade was never put out by Columbia Records in the United States. It was serviced in the UK briefly with a whimper. 
pressed a thousand CDs or something ridiculous like that. They got the dates wrong on the posters. It was, it was just all like they were just like obviously flushing it down the toilet. So, um, so was that yeah. like a difficult time for you on a personal level to, you know, make something which still like that? If that album came out today, it would sound incredible and like one of the best albums of the year on any list. And what and you make really, you make something yeah. so good, and then you know you get dropped and no love. Like, sure. what does that do to your sense of self worth and your overall mood and and well being? I guess it was briefly felt really, you know, undermining, sort of shook up and feeling like maybe I shouldn't be doing this. But then it became more and more obvious over the course of trying to deliver it to the label. That these people don't know what the fuck they're talking about. And I'm best to be not in their system. Let's get out of here. Like that was good. The, 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 the disappointment and the sort of uh, uh, dissolution and, the, and the, the self-loathing were quickly replaced with, let's get, these people don't get it. Let's leave, you know. And it was, um, that, that became the, the next path for us the rest of our career right there deciding to not try to be a major label band anymore in any sense having recouped on the first album and still not being able to build what else what else is what else can you do you know we thought that's it this is done there's something wrong with the system and we were right because the very next year they merged with bmg and it was like the collapse of the music industry you know itunes came online youtube started up um cds disappeared I still had people in, in 2005 telling me CDs were going to come back and sell tons again. And it was just like, no, I don't think so. You know, so the genie um, was out of the bottle by that point, wasn't it? Yeah. And there were a lot of people running around trying to tell the future and they were all wrong and they were all older and used to a higher profit margin and fewer artists rights and so on. So goodbye to that, you know? So, from that point on, are you pretty much an independent operation from Absolutely. then from then till now? And that's is that the way you you've done things every step of the way ever since in terms of management and label and everything? Yeah, we haven't had management or a label for eighteen years now. Um, that's there's no room for that in our operation. We do our own work. We load our own gear. We pack our own trucks. We do our own tech. You know, I'm standing yeah. in my living room. Like that's that's you know that's it. You're, you're looking at the operation right behind me. You know, this it's is punk rock, man. It's punk rock and it's art and it's DIY and it's all the things I love. And as I said, I saw that that night at the Brooklyn Bowl. I was like, you know, because I think like everybody, if, if you're aware of a band and, and kind of a, a massive hit that they have as a, you know, a teenager and whatever, when you're growing up and then, you know, they're not in the press anymore. And you, a lot of people just think, well, where are those guys now? And then you see where they are and you go, oh, wow, they're actually doing it. Like, that's the dream right there is to still make music to still have people who genuinely love you come out to the shows and support the band i see it with bowling for soup as well like if i mentioned to someone that maybe listened to to pop punk as a teenager and hasn't listened to it since 2002 and you sort of say oh i'm going on tour bowling for soup and they're like they're still a thing like that's a very popular phrase to throw around oh they're still a thing are they and it's that like could, that could be translated to i don't know music yeah right <laughs> It's like get out of the house and come and see the show and you'll see they're very much still a thing. Yeah. Yeah, true. True. I mean, yeah, I I I don't care I don't care if if two people come to see us. They're getting they're getting the thing that I've wanted to do since I was 10, you know. They're getting this like I couldn't possibly have worked on it any harder moment. So and it's, a, it's like you said, like DIY to some degree is an acceptance of your own limitations. I don't know how to do it another way. I don't know how to hand it off to somebody to take care of. You know, I don't know, I don't know how to do that. I don't know anybody like that. So I, I do it myself. And I think you're right. I think it's about, you know, what do you want to do? I want to be in a great band. I don't care about anything else, really. You know, so that's it. And you got Ed Sellers on your team still, I presume. Love Ed. The best of the best of the best. He's a dear friend of mine, somebody I've known a long time, somebody I care for deeply. And yeah, and I've just seen you've, you've announced a monster, monster, monster UK tour for later in the year. And I feel like this has timed out quite nicely because, you know, I, I mentioned to you earlier, we sort of briefly spoke about doing one of these years ago. But um, 
as soon as I sort of, you know, had the idea, oh, maybe now's a good time. And then that pretty much directly coincided with when you announced about 100 dates for the UK in September and October, kind of going everywhere, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. Pure insanity. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we I don't like to I don't like days off. Um, Jarrett's the same. If there, yeah. yeah. If it's a Sunday afternoon and there's a sweaty pub with a PA in it, let's go. You know, uh, so what if there's 50 people there who just finished their roast? Great. Let's give them a show. You know, like, let's, let's do it. And I, I, I told, I tell Ed that every time we get on the phone and talk about a tour and then he comes back to me with this list and he goes, fucking hell, mate, look at this. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, that's great. That's just yeah, that's ample what I, enough. That's ample. What it says on the tin. Let's go. <laughs> I imagine you'll be playing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tunes at the course of uh, yeah, yeah. All we're of gonna we're dates. gonna keep we're gonna keep stats <laughs> this time. How 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 many songs did you play? How long were you on stage? How many people did you play for? We'll get we'll get it all lined up. We'll get we'll get it we'll get this baseball style baseball. It's been lovely talking to you, man, and it's really just inspiring for me to see someone like yourself who's still excited by you know all of the process, the songwriting, the touring the engagement with the audience, the, the level of just kind of ownership that you have over your art is, is also awesome to see. And um, I guess you wouldn't change a thing, right? Is that safe to say? Everything that's happened in your, your life and career has, has happened for a reason and, and you're pretty stoked with, with where it's all led you? Yeah, I'm not sure which mistakes were the right ones, you know? So don't, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, I guess. Um, and, uh, you know, I appreciate you giving us your airtime and people like you still paying attention in any sense is a is a real fortunate thing for us and you know um oh, doorbell's ringing right on time but, there we go but, uh, <laughs> but thank you so much man i appreciate it we'll talk again i hope there's buddy I've yeah man 100 percent. well I'll, I'll i'll message ed and I'll, I'll pick out one of the many shows that you've got going on and and figure out a date to come to and yeah it'd be nice to come see you and say hello at one of the shows all right brother thank you so much Cheers, Brendan. Have a great day. Take good care. luck with the strings, all right? Yeah, thanks. Have a we'll good see one. You. Take care. Take care. I tried to discover a little something to make me sweeter. Oh, baby, refrain from breaking my heart. So in love with you, I'll be forever blue. That you give me no reason, you know you're making me work so hard. That you give. Me